Thanks very much for that, Robin. Uh, by the way, uh, just if you don't know, Robin is employed here at Willerton Christian Church as our women's pastoral ministry worker. Um, and so she has a focus on offering spiritual care, uh, encouraging discipleship, and teaching our women particularly about life in Jesus. But I'm going to be really honest with you uh, from the get-go of what I'm saying, uh, nailing our colours to the wall, so to speak, and that is that in our church and in our church tradition or denomination, uh, Robin cannot be an elder. Uh, she can be a leader, a teacher and a mentor, but she can't be an elder. She can be a pastor in as much as she pastorally cares for people, but she can't be a capital P pastor who is an elder. Why not? Because there is one role in Scripture that God has given to men only, and it's best summed up, I think, by two words, and those two words are spiritual authority. Now, before you call me a misogynist or a bigot and storm out of here without a glance backwards, perhaps we can just step back and dip our toes into the big picture of the Bible before we come back to this implication. Uh, Robin's already alluded to this, but let's have a look. God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. That is, as you can see from the very first chapter in the Bible, Genesis 1, where God creates the heavens and the earth, where He forms it and He fills it. He creates and He rules. In the beginning, what we find in, in the text is that there is good, there is very good, and there is not good. The good was the whole universe made in its order. The very good was people made in the image of God, the epitome of, of God's creation, also in their order. And the not good, which comes in the next chapter, is that at first... The man was alone. The man was alone. He was on his own. Now you can see there from uh, the text that both men and women were made in God's image, as, as Robin highlighted before. They are equal image bearers. They have equal dignity and humanity. In chapter 2, Adam gives the name woman, which, uh, which means of man and he gives that to the partner that God makes and, and it highlights that as we heard she's made of the same stuff, she's his equal, she's made from his side and, and she'll stay by his side because she is to be a partner and a mate. The word that is actually used in Genesis uh, 2 is helper which some people have taken issue with, you know, does that mean she's an assistant uh, you know, is, is, is she inferior because of that? You know, was Eve the first secretary? But no, she wasn't. She was Adam's teammate, partner. 
And the term helper says as much about Adam as it does about Eve, because on his own, he was incomplete. There was something not right about him on his own. He needed a helper. And there are many, many times in the Bible, just to take it further, where God calls himself our helper, using the exact same word. He is our helper, and it is by no means a term of inferiority. Some of you have watched the, uh, the hellish dystopian show that is The Handmaid's Tale, where women are literally called of so-and-so, you know, insert man's name, and they are used in that uh, kind of imaginative society purely for making babies. But Eve is a partner and a mate before she was a mother, which is what the, the name Eve means. It means mother. And as Robin mentioned before, both men and women are given the task of ruling and filling. It's not that you know one rules and the other fills. They are both equal partners in ruling and filling the earth. And all of this, of course, probably most importantly, is that it's done in the context of relationship. It wasn't good for the man to be alone. His partner would also be his friend. The two were to become one. Unity. Relationship and unity is essential. And so what we find is that there's sameness and there's, there's equality and there's unity and there's oneness. All these things to celebrate. And within that, there is also diversity and distinction. Also to celebrate. Men and women are different. They're different sexually and they perform different roles in the ruling and the filling on the earth. They are equal but complementary, as, as Robin talked about. And it echoes, I think, the nature of God Himself, who is one being. We say He's one being, but He is three distinct persons. In and of Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is one but many. He is, he is uh, united but diverse. He is equal but complementary. And this is also how God designs the church. Church is called in Scripture uh, the body of Christ. And Paul says it is one body made up of many parts, united but diverse. Equal but complementary. And that includes the roles that we play within the church and we'll come back to that in a little bit. But see, this complementary equality, if I can call it that, is, it was never a problem, was, wasn't going to be a problem until sin enters the world. And this is, this is what we call the fall, when sin enters the world. And so Adam and Eve, they're tempted by the devil, who lies about God's goodness and order, and says, that can't be right. And he causes them to doubt what God has said and, and to rebel from what God has said. And Eve, she takes the lead, yes, but Adam shirks his responsibility, passes the buck. Both of them choose to sin. Both of them choose to hide from God. And when he eventually finds them, both of them try to blame someone else. 
And if there's one obvious thing that's revealed in the fall, it's that men and women are equal in sin. They're equally sinful. They're equal in creation and they're equal in rebellion. You've heard that, uh, that term, I don't think you can avoid hearing it in today's culture, toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity and maybe somewhere out there you've heard a, a man who has maybe dared to say something about toxic femininity. I don't know, I've, I've never heard it, but you know, maybe. But the reality is neither masculinity or femininity are toxic. Sin is what is toxic. Gender is good. God made it to be good, but sin is toxic. And so when a man denigrates or objectifies a woman, that's sin. And when a woman belittles or emasculates a man, that's sin. When a man abuses and beats a woman because he's physically stronger, that's sin. And when a woman slags everything that a man does, maybe because she's smarter, that's sin. And just like men and women are equal but distinct in creation, so they are equal but distinct in sin. It expresses itself in different ways. The curse or uh, the result of the fall is a corruption. For example, on the woman's childbearing, there is great pain. The man's work, there is going to be frustration. But probably worst of all, the order and the goodness of their relationship. He will both abuse and shirk his responsibility and she will either seek to seize it or cower under it. <laughs> you know, it's no wonder that we struggle with this issue, isn't it? That we're afraid of this issue because the fall has corrupted it. And it's a depressing picture, isn't it? But we know that this is what sin does. Not just between the genders, but in general. It causes people to hunger for power and to oppress others. It causes people to steal and to take and, and you know, control others. It, it ruins relationships all the time. And this is why also the Bible contains these practices that concern us, that make us uncomfortable. You know, things like polygamy, for example. And we go, what's that doing in the Bible? Or, or concubines, you know, how, how could God allow there to be concubines or that practice? Or handmaids as surrogate mothers. What's the deal with that? But just because they're in the Bible doesn't mean that they're good. It doesn't mean that they're the way God designed things. They are a result of sin. And there would be no hope if it weren't for Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who can defeat that toxic sin and redeem God's design in creation. And He shows this, doesn't He? In His life on earth, in His treatment of women during His time on earth. You know, it's a complete contrast to the culture of His day. Jesus mixed with women, he traveled with women, he taught women, he healed women, he was sponsored by women, he served women, 
He loved women as equals. Listen to this quote uh, from uh, a lady, an author, writer from last, you know, way back in last century. Her name's Dorothy Sayers. She says, perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronised, who never made arch jokes about them, never treated them either as, you know, the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. I particularly like that part. Who took them as he found them and was completely unself-conscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. And nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about woman's nature. Now, obviously, that's over a century old, or around about a century old, and so there's some interesting phrasing there. But it's a great point, isn't it? This man, God's son is our model. And that's true for for us men, but that's also true for you women. It's worth adding, as another author does, that the men in the Gospels had never met a man like Jesus either, who didn't compete with them, or put them down, or demand unearned respect. But it was his treatment of women that was the most countercultural in that time. Jesus redeemed the equality of men and women, not just in his life, but even more so in his death. As I mentioned before, his death is what knocks down the dividing walls of class and race and gender. Jesus' gift, his life, his salvation is offered to everyone without discrimination. But Jesus also redeems the complementarity of men and women, the distinction. He affirms their differences, their uniqueness, their gifting, their contribution. And while he doesn't choose any women to be his apostles, they are still an equal part of his ministry and very close to his heart. And that brings me back to this issue of spiritual authority and the controversy that it causes. And allow me to to just define what I mean by those two words. Firstly, I'm talking about spiritual authority. I'm not talking here about authority in the secular world or the corporate world or in government or in Uh, you know, politics or law enforcement. But authority in the Christian church and in the home of Christians. That is the context of discipleship, where we are learning 
to become like Jesus. And then secondly, I'm talking about spiritual authority in a specific way. I'm not talking about broader leadership or broader teaching or the coordination of ministry, all these areas that we love seeing women fulfill roles. But the specific biblical role and calling of eldership and the specific function and calling of preaching. So whenever the Apostle Paul talks about this authority, and uh, we also know it perhaps in Christian circles as uh, the male headship principle, he limits it to men by appealing back to creation. And so it's not just a culture thing. It's not just something, oh, that, that was what happened back in those days because, you know, they were all backwards and, you know, get with the 21st century uh, kind of thing. He appeals to creation. It's a timeless principle with roots in God's original design. And that design, as we've said, is both good and orderly. And part of that order, as God has determined is that men who were made first would be given a specific authority to lead the family in serving God. Or as, as Robin talked about, in godliness. They are to be leaders and disciples of their wives and kids. Or to put it more simply, the buck stops with them. Which made it even more ironic when Adam sought to pass the buck. And again, Jesus' redemption is so crucial here, so incredibly important. They are not to be domineering leaders. They are not to be authoritarian heads. They, like Jesus himself, are to be servant leaders. They are to sacrifice themselves for their families, to lay down their lives, for their families. And it's in this context that women are called to submit. Not submit to abuse, not submit to the boss, submit by receiving and accepting the service and the sacrifice that husbands and fathers are called to make. And to respect the significance of that. And these principles are the same in the church, except that here in the church, the specific calling of eldership and of preaching would actually only be given to some men. And so it's not just that women won't take on that task, but many men will not either. It's a position of special spiritual authority. And again, it requires servant leadership and sacrifice. Elders and pastors, which means shepherds, <laughs> they are to lay down their lives for their people. They're to be the first who lay down their lives. And so this is where I think we need to change direction just one last time. Because Christians always seem to be emphasising what women or others can't do. You know, why can't they, you know, serve in that way? Or what about these people? Why can't that happen? But the whole point of the good news of Jesus 
is to reveal what we all can do, what we can all do. And in Jesus, here's the kicker, we can all lay down our lives for our fellow image bearers. That's not an exclusive right just for some people. We can all serve each other. We can all lead each other. We can all disciple each other. We can all teach and preach the gospel to each other. If you're visiting here today and your understanding of the church is that there are ministers or priests or pastors and elders who do the ministering and then there's, there's parishioners or members who, who just receive it, I want to say you've got it all wrong. Although I will admit that we Christians often portray it that way. And maybe we, we often prefer it that way. But no, in the church, everyone is a minister. Everyone is a priest and a pastor. Everyone is a prophet and a teacher. Everyone is a king and a leader under Jesus. All the men, all the women, all the children. This is what Jesus makes us. This is what he calls us to. This is our purpose in life. To teach the good news to each other. To give pastoral care to each other. To pray with and for each other. To lead each other and set an example for each other. Like that of Jesus. To help each other grow and learn and improve. At what? At humility, at service, at sacrifice. And every one of us can be a part of that. Christians, I think, as well as others, are often bickering about the issue of women in positions of authority in the church. And so much of it is our forgetfulness of what we are all called to do. All of us as well as the reality that positions of authority are to be the lowliest positions. Serving and equipping the rest to live out their shared calling. This isn't an issue that we need to be afraid of because of cancel culture, because of the attitude in the world around us. As Robin said, God has given us a great design and we can embrace it. We can celebrate it. We can make the most of it by all of us seeking to serve each other. Allow me to pray. Father, we just acknowledge before you that this is um, a challenging topic. That because of sin in the world, uh, we do bicker about these things. We struggle with them. We're at odds with each other so often. That we recognize the differences 
between our genders and that sometimes that turns negative. That rather than celebrating, we turn against each other. And we want to ask for your forgiveness, Lord, because we all do that to an extent. Whether it's in jokes here and there, whether it's in our own thoughts, whether it's in unchecked attitudes, we're all guilty of looking down on the other or looking with bitterness at the other. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll forgive us. We pray that you will give us a a sense of joy and excitement for what you have made when you made human beings in two genders. That we can celebrate the equality, the unity, the sameness, but also celebrate the distinction, the differences, the complementarity. We thank you that you've made it that way, Lord. And we pray that in the world, but especially here in the church, we're able to embrace it and work with it and build each other up, build up our leaders, build up all of us, each other as servants so that we can all serve to the best of our ability and capacity and that we all might be discipled and we all might grow in godliness. Lord, if there's any here today who are visiting, wondering what Christians really think about this, challenged by the issue, we pray that you might show the goodness of your design and that we're all able to have open, gracious conversations about these things. Not bringing each other down, but building each other up. And we pray it in Jesus' name.